0: Welcome to the Betsy, Betsy Boss, Boss Podcast.
1: Podcast. Welcome back. We are just coming off of the 2020 Summer Olympics because they're still calling them 2020 uh, since I they were canceled. <laughs> yeah,
0: even I thought it was kind of funny. All of like the beams and the equipment and all that stuff still had 2020 on it, which was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was kind of neat. It, I feel so badly, though, that they had to build all these facilities for I all these people know. to obviously sit and be spectators in. And then <laughs> and it they're never all empty. Happened. Yeah, it's yeah. just a freaking nightmare. What a waste of money! Lose money, yeah, unbelievable. But what really captured my imagination this year, and I think you felt the same, is women's gymnastics. Oh my god, yeah! Because yeah. I mean, back when we were growing up, gymnastics, like wow. Oh. Besides soccer, How like many being birthday a birthday parties deal, and, uh, you know,
0: whatever that you went to? It was always gymnastics. Come every
1: on. time. And, like, I so badly wanted to be good at gymnastics. But being a fat <laughs> <See>. kid.
0: <laughs> Me being
1: projected to be six feet tall at the age of two. So. <laughs> being yeah. large and in charge. <laughs> yeah. I was promptly ex- disqualified. <laughs> ex- yeah. Yeah the uh soviet program that weeded out you
0: know all the kids that weren't gonna make it
1: yeah clearly. oh that would have weeded me out yeah they saw before be com-
0: birth they saw me coming out of the hospital and were like nope oh yeah no
1: they i would not have even come close to making it no tried so hard in camp to like participate <laughs> in gymnastics and do all the stuff Best
0: spirit best sp- like...
1: hardest tryer yeah, that's right <laughs> literally would try so hard they had to start me at square one and they were. were. We're like, let's just start with a forward (laughs) roll. Like even that shit. Too scary. Too fast. Who knows what's going to happen? You could break your neck doing that shit. Yeah, you could. So yeah, it was just, it was so hard. But what was your experience with gymnastics growing up? Oh my God.
0: So one, my sister was amazing at it. And she actually, I feel like I'm going to interject some of the commentary from being so involved in it as a sibling of someone that was so involved in it. But back in the day when we were really little and starting to do it, um, just thinking back to, like, the birthday parties and the little kids stuff, we both kind of started and tried to do it at the same time. I was terrible. Too tall. Too uncoordinated. <laughs> but apparently, we talked about it a couple, like, years later. There was one portion of it where they'd set up kind of a circuit that you would go through. Like, you'd flip over
1: the bar. Oh, yeah. Jump on the cheese. Yeah.
0: But there was one part where it was, like, this long tunnel that you had to Ooh. go to, go through, and I hated it. And I, we just talked about this recently, like, my sister and I, where she, at her birthday party, specifically requested that the tunnel not be included. I don't
1: blame her. Because
0: I was I was always afraid that it was going to be, like, someone's struggling in front of me, Carrie's struggling in front of me, <laughs> someone's Carrie's struggling behind it behind me and
1: you're plugged and in. I'm
0: plugged in there and I'm like fuck like no one's like literally I'm buried alive and I guess she had the same phobia we never talked about it but she just told me recently that she like specifically requested that the tunnel was not included as part of her birthday party because Ugh. she was so afraid of it too well
1: thank god because <laughs> oh, honestly I
0: hated it those things always
1: smelled like arse Ew. yeah and- it was
0: Feet and butt. Feet. Like... It was <laughs> total
1: butt smell. You were basically in a giant poop Ugh. shoot all the time. Yeah, with you all these the other snot-nosed kids.
0: Small like... Oh,
1: you sure were. You were just the piece of food trying Ugh. to get digested. Yeah, and, and if you were
0: me, you were stuck between two other
1: pieces of food. Oh, like... absolutely. Well, how about did you guys have the ball pit? Oh, like the fo- well, or the foam. Yeah, pit. Yeah, we the had the... a foam pit. We had the
0: foam pit, mm-hmm. and then we also had, which was terrifying but I did it, via, um, the um zip line.
1: Oh, my God. At your gymnastics place? Yeah. Oh, oh That yeah. is
0: genuinely scary. And it was scary because it actually went, they had one that was, like, lower <laughs> that you would do, and it was kind of level, and you would just kind of, like, do it and then kind of stop at the other end against a padded wall.
1: And <laughs> God then, bless you if you could hang on that long. Oh,
0: there was a scarier one, though, where you actually had to put on, like, a belt like they belted you and it was pretty much you went up to a like balcony yeah, area. Yeah you have to like climb
1: a pole right? You went
0: to like a balcony like a second floor balcony <laughs> and had to like strap in and hold on and just like
1: jump go off. down
0: like zing with the string of my <laughs> <laughs> like zing with the string of my harness like
1: yeah, I know well oh. the things that you could do as a child are just insane oh because you God. just don't have any fear. They were You don't yeah. know to question question they, they were just
0: like teasing you to get a concussion like... oh
1: they sure were they were waiting for that Ugh. one big fall or the time that the harness doesn't work or Ugh. Whatever. yeah but what was
0: the checked Like, yeah. many times were these things checked,
1: or it was just like, do it. Just Something do it. tells me infrequently. And they yeah. were like, well, these kids probably weigh about 50 pounds. Yeah, Meanwhile, sure I was blobbing them. all my. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, Over was, at 200 I was, I saw, pounds.
0: They were like, what's that adult doing up there? It was like, <laughs> was she the chaperone? Nope. She's the big sister. <laughs> the really big sister. <laughs> well, you know what? All this
1: suffices to say that we are. Are obviously thinking about (laughs) USA gymnastics. Yeah, if it wasn't clear before, a sport that we did not qualify for. for, Thank God, because the people who did qualify (laughs) were subjected to some really messed up stuff. And our perfectionist personalities—oh, we never would have been okay because there's no way that we could succeed. But we were perfectionists, so oh we would have God. beat ourselves up about <laughs> yes. it. There's no chance that we would have come out alive. <laughs> no, no, And I don't know how most of these young women came uh, out alive, frankly, because, who? my gosh, we today are talking about the victims, the survivors of Larry Nassar. Yes,
0: yeah. And before we get into this, I think we both talked about this a little bit before doing this episode, that we don't want this to be an episode focused on Larry Nassar and focused on, you know, kind of all the offenses that he all. Yeah. All of the like terrible things that happened in gymnastics that he perpetrated. And, you know, we want to really try to focus on the women and the survivors. And one woman's voice was really able to kind of unite this whole group of survivors And I think that's kind of the message that we want to focus on. But obviously, we can't get to that point without kind of giving a background and starting with the whole history of this culture within gymnastics itself.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's so true. And well said that we want to make the survivors the focus. We want to make the women the focus. This is a women's podcast, a feminist podcast. We want to focus on, you know, how all of these women – United against this one common enemy and the common enemy not being Larry Nassar, the common enemy being this systematic approach that gymnastics took to silencing victims, to keeping people quiet, to sweeping things under the rug that should have come out. So let's start by getting into the background of, I guess, laying the foundation of how Larry somebody who was really a twiglet twerp dork I
0: know became and such these a monster he said this too they're like oh he was kind of goofy kind of dopey and it's like yeah he really was
1: yeah he sure was and Ugh. I think that was part of how he got in 100%. there it was clearly a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of situation and we'll get more into that too and how he developed this trustworthy facade yes. and how he created this character that he could hide behind and do these dastardly deeds. Yeah. It was
0: really a, a systemic, you know, kind of multiple levels of failure within the gymnastics community. Um, so just giving a quick background on Nasser. So obviously he was a medical doctor, like he graduated from med school um, during that time. He had always focused on becoming a trainer And he went on to then work at Michigan State University, MSU. He took a job as a trainer working with athletes. And he also, it was like pretty much right away, he got right into women's gymnastics. So um, USA Gymnastics, USGA, Um, up until 2016, 2017, He had really been with um, MSU and USGA for over 20 years. So these organizations that he started out with, he had been there and continued to be like just kind of rise up the ladder and become this prominent Mm -hmm. figure within women's gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah. I was just really surprised watching this these documentaries, though, because I thought, like, no one has heard of this guy. Like, where did he come from? But if you look back to even the classic, infamous Carrie Strug, Strug Fest over here, my namesake, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, he was actually there on the sidelines carrying her off after doing that second vault, after having broken her ankle and, you know, going for it. He was right there, and it's so creepy to see, like, oh my god, he has been in it since, you know, the get-go, kind yep, of, when since gymnastics became really big in the 90s.
1: Yeah, that's so true, and it's so, like you said, it's so creepy because this whole Carrie Strugfest scenario where Carrie sticks the landing on a broken ankle. She Mm -hmm. lands sort of one-footed. It's an insane feat of agility and athleticism, but she shouldn't have been made to do that. No. And she was held out as this hero. You know, she landed herself a deal with Wheaties. She got put on every Wheaties box. Everybody knew who Carrie Strugfest, (laughs) (laughs) Carrie Strug was. And it was really amazing i mean she completely deserves to get those accolades and to be praised oh, yeah. for that incredible incredible feat but by the same token you start to think man like what kind of culture did they have here where yeah. she felt the necessity to go through with that vault even though she knew she was gravely injured
0: well and it it goes to the question of like yeah it's, it's something to be praised and it's wow that's really amazing that's strength and that's you know even like bodily strength to be able to push through the pain but did these women have the choice like what was her other option did she even feel like she had the voice to say like I'm not gonna do this second vault"?
1: yeah and I think it's safe to say she didn't because no. when it comes down to it and when we get into how somebody like Nasser comes in and can take advantage of all these young girls under their parents noses under other adults noses it all comes down to them not feeling like they have a voice and their concerns getting swept under the rug and just this crazy attitude of whatever it takes, doesn't matter what right. your concerns are, doesn't matter what the problems are. Doesn't we are if you're we need to injured. win. It's just yeah. like push through it. In spite of against all odds. Yeah. Yeah. Truly all odds.
0: Yeah. Um, so just a bit more on Nasser's background. So Michigan MSU really plays a big part in this. Um, he took this job, it required outreach actually of him. So he went on to kind of take some volunteer positions. He was out there and it just like thinking of the numbers, like you don't even want to think of these women as numbers, but if you really were to even think of it on the base level as of numbers, I cannot imagine how many women he was has exposed to has had his hands on. Like it just, it's sickening.
1: Um, and especially these women who had less of a voice because they were either children, right? Or he um, started his foundation to raise money for autism, exactly, which had the double edged advantage Ugh. of making him look like an all around good guy, exactly. And it exposed him to people who were much more vulnerable and much easier to attack yeah yeah it's just it's terrible it
0: gives him this persona of being such a you know nice again like this goofy kind of dopey guy that's a you know doctor and he's just out there in the community he was in church he was in local high schools and uh outreach you know, organizations, it was just like, oh,
1: Larry, he's such a great guy. Yeah, he was like everyone's neighbor, everyone's friend, that dad, that father figure that was out in the crowd, out here doing good and doing good for his fellow neighbor, raising money for the less fortunate. He he could do no wrong.
0: No, no. And that, I mean, you'll see it later on, but so many of even his victims were – You know, at first, like, Larry, no, it couldn't be him. No way.
1: No way. Even when they were getting assaulted, most of them couldn't even really conceptualize it because they loved him. They loved him like a father. And I mean, we'll get more into what he did to um, inner himself to his victims and to appeal to them and to make them fall in love with him in a way that created this total power imbalance and this guilt on the part of the victims because they thought, man, I can't turn Larry in. He's he's like a dad to me. Yeah, it couldn't be him. Yeah. No, and I think it's
0: really interesting after reading and looking a bit more into this, um, kind of the history of gymnastics and some of the names that are associated with gymnastics, women's gymnastics, at least for as far back as I can remember. Yeah. Um, so you have the Carolis, Bella and Marta. And I obviously didn't really know much about gymnastics in the 1970s, but they were kind of the, um, what do I want to say, the elite coaches of Romania in the 1970s who were behind such stars as Nadia Comaneci. And she was the first to have the perfect 10 in the 1970s. And at this point, you know, the Americans obviously wanted whatever the secret sauce was that the Romanians had and the Carolis came over here and really kind of revolutionized the whole outlook on
1: gymnastics over here. Yeah. And the image of the gymnast. So like yes. when you picture a gymnastics star, what do you picture age wise, body yeah. wise? What do you think of?
0: Yeah. And I mean, again, cause I was around it a lot with my sister being in it, but I think it's pretty general that you think of somebody that's very petite, very mm-hmm. muscular, very and very young. young. Yeah. yeah, all yeah. those
1: things, and that was not the case before the Corollis yeah, came to America. Which to is learn this. Yes, yeah, because we were, like you said, only ever exposed to the Coroli method and to the Coroli ideals of what a gymnast should look like. Who was a superstar that could get these perfect ten type scores exactly. and could win gold? I always think. Okay, they they look like little girls. They look like children. Yeah, I and... mean, I, the,
0: the physical, you know, um, stuff that they're going through, it obviously delays or stunts um, puberty, and they're mm-hmm. kind of always going to be small and not going through kind of that physical maturation.
1: Yeah, yeah, and before this caroli period – The women that we saw competing in gymnastics were women. They were in their 20s. They had breasts. They had hips. They were developed. And they were adults. They were adults, yeah. And they didn't look like these muscle-bound, tiny little compact – creatures that gymnasts are now when yeah. you really think of a gymnast I mean I think of Simone Biles who's exactly itty bitty but so thick so muscular yeah. and uh, just looks like a little girl and to me that's sort of that's the image it's it's Simone it's Shawn Johnson exactly it's all of those type of young women who just they're they look like children
0: yeah no I I can definitely say again from um seeing you know with my sister and some of the other athletes that she, you know, she rose up to level nine, actually, by the age of, I want to say like 11, 12, um, level 10 is obviously you're right on then the precipice of competing for the national team and moving on to the Olympics. So if you're thinking about, you know, 11, 12 year olds, even around that age, um, all of the physical repetition and just the demand on your body, you're not growing, you're not developing. And I know certain people, you know, once they stopped gymnastics, it was just like, whoa, if they stopped at a certain time, you know, um, during middle school or something like that, it was like they shot up all of a sudden because that uh, repetition and repression wasn't occurring anymore. And so it really does make you wonder, like,
1: is this something that we should have been exposing our children yeah. to? Yeah, and what are the like long-term effects going to be Right, this? right. And what was interesting about the Carolis is, I mean, like you said, they had the secret sauce. Everybody wanted to do what they were doing. They wanted the Carolis to coach them. They wanted to be part of this elite group and the Carolis advocated for training girls when they were so much younger than we yeah. had ever thought before. Like, we're talking three or four years old. Yeah. And, like, getting them in there from that age. And getting that competitive drive, finding children who had no fear, mm-hmm. who didn't question authority—I mean, it was almost like child warriors, yeah, or something like preparing for battle. Yeah, like just they a, like natural selection. Out. It was yeah. Creepy. They found children who not only like were interested in gymnastics, had an interest in wanting to win, or you know, dreams of the Olympics. But children who – this was going to be their whole life. Right, yeah. Looking at their strength, their –
0: like you said, fearlessness, their body types. Like, oh, it just – it's really crazy to think because at three years old, even like – Even up until, again, like middle
1: school. You're still growing. You're still changing. You're so pliable. But that was a big part of why they chose to work with children this young. Because they were so much easier to control. And the parents with these big dreams, with children with big dreams of being Olympians, parents gave their children over willingly to the Carolees. And they, I mean, they were begging for them to train them. Oh, absolutely. And any slight complaint on the part of the children the parents whatever and your dreams are dashed yeah the Carolis would they have the final say they have the final say they would just not do anything to hear you out to wait and listen no it was all about the factory all about churning out those wins
0: yeah yeah so we we kind of see the Carolis you know rise to fame in their own right and uh going fast forwarding to 2000 we have bella and marta they actually became the u.s national team program leads they took over the whole program as part of this it was a kind of semi-centralized system so they were really the the leads on it they kind of had the final say you still had the gymnast where they would bring their own personal coaches in um but everybody i mean you say the Carolis, Bella Caroli, like everybody knows that is a name in women's U.S. gymnastics. Yes. Um, and so this, again, goes to this whole culture that really allowed Nasser to kind of get to the position that he got into. Uh, they required that all gymnasts that were at the national level. So this is the level kind of where they're weaning out and determining who's going to actually make the Olympic team uh, the Carolis required that they attended this monthly camp at the Caroli Ranch in Texas, which is creepy
1: as oh all my God, hell. it is scary. This is like a war camp, guys, I mean, Texas it's Chainsaw
0: like, Massacre, literally Texas Gymnastics Massacre, truly,
1: right? literally these camps were in the middle of nowhere And that separation was felt even further by the athletes because there was this whole idea that the athletes should be totally separated from the outside world. They had to be completely focused on gymnastics and gymnastics alone. So there were no phones. There were no phone calls to your mom. There were no communications with the outside world. You couldn't even write letters back home you were to be completely and totally focused on your purpose there, which was gymnastics. So it, it was an extremely isolating, you know, separated area from the outside world where these gymnasts were just, they were alone. They were isolated. Yeah, it was they gymnastics, were gymnastics day in day out and that's it. Yes. And it was crazy harsh You know, um, workouts every day, physical punishment, punishing workouts, punishing. um, Physical and mental, too. I mean. Yes. Yeah. And it, it was just a ton of pressure. And the Carolis were nasty. They were stern. They, you know. Everybody was mean. Everybody was mean. They yeah. were degrading. It reminded me a lot of Judy Garland, what we talked about a couple yes. of weeks ago, with oh, everything so right. being aimed
0: at targeting all adults in in these children's lives. Yeah, yeah, all these
1: adults were just that were around them were there to demean them, were there to insult them, were there to call them fat, you know, lazy, stupid, whatever. Exactly. And to just ridicule them until they performed appropriately. Yeah. And I and, think
0: yeah. this is kind of the, you know, break them down to build them up mentality.
1: Exactly. And, but it's uh, like they're uh, children. They're not army, you know, enrollees or whatever. Like,
0: yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because um, just being, again, like in this whole gymnastics culture and seeing the cutthroatness I guess you want to say, Um, there was actually, it was really interesting. I was able to find it on, um, YouTube back in 2002. There was a documentary done on this gym in Allentown called Parkettes. Oh my gosh. And it was about kind of the, like, it it was kind of like a, a profile piece looking at some of these gymnasts that were at this highly competitive, um, gym some of them traveling over five hours you know a lot of them being homeschooled and then the coaches being honestly verbally abusive and very harsh on these young children and it just I don't know I I, again watched again today watch some of it and it's just so crazy to see like I don't know if I'd be mentally tough as they like to say it you know enough
1: to to make it through that without not breaking as a person right exactly but yeah I mean these camps were harsh they were rough the whole gymnastics culture was really really challenging
0: yeah and Again, this is where Larry comes yep. in. Yeah, enter
1: Larry, everyone's dad. Exactly. Everyone's goofball friend. Yeah, who, the funny uncle who makes you laugh and, and then, then molests candy. you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the hilarious uncle who hilariously yeah. feels you up. Exactly. Yeah. So Larry was the antithesis of all of these practices, yeah. these harsh treatments that Bella and Marta practiced. So he would joke with the kids, he'd take interest in them, he would make them feel special. Yeah. He did everything to unfortunately to groom them mm-hmm. and make them feel comfortable with him. They saw him as a friend, they saw him as an ally. He would let them call their parents on his cell phone even though they weren't supposed to have any contact with the outside world during camp. So they really came to trust Larry and to care for him. And he built a rapport with them this way. It was really um, pretty incredible, Um, not in a positive way, but a very, very conniving way to work up these girls' trust in him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine being berated all day. You feel awful. You're, you know, beat down throughout the day. And then you go There's somebody that, you know, is positive and funny and takes an interest in your life. Like, of course, you're going to gravitate towards that person, regardless of who they are. Right.
1: And the other thing that Larry had going for him was a ton of expertise. So and a lot of the time he would sort of throw this in people's faces in a way to kind of confuse them or just be a little bit vexatious and talk in circles and be chatty. So This sport is just one where you're going to get injured. Exactly. And it's only a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. And Larry was waiting in the wings for these young athletes to get injured. So these athletes, first of all, not only have they been groomed to love Larry and to care for him as a friend, but they've also been groomed to take all different kinds of treatment oh yeah and to believe that whatever kind of treatment that larry this incredible doctor this guy who's worked with superstars that are plastered all over his office that he can do no wrong and that any treatment that he did must be valid medical treatment i mean yeah how could you contest any of it Right. And of course, you know, he's babbling all the while while he's touching these girls and manipulating them. And he's giving them a mix of true medical care that's actually Mm -hmm. helping to heal their injuries. And he's inappropriately touching them. So these athletes just got really used to Larry doing all sorts of things to them and kind of blabbering about, well, you know, this is the coccyx and it connects yeah, to the hip bone and, their, yeah. you know, goes over their over heads their and head. sort of brushes it off Do by saying, need the Hannah Montana, like, the, <laughs> the, the parattle <laughs> bone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we need to post that. Right? No, maybe not, but the bone <laughs> dance. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, Larry totally used that to his ad- advantage and would say things like, Oh, well, you wouldn't know about this, but like. Yeah,
0: this ligament
1: attaches
0: and it's, yeah. Right, but here's what I'm doing. Um,
1: And specifically, he said that there was a pelvic floor issue that could be worked on through the vagina, which is just disgusting and horrifying because it wasn't totally implausible that pelvic massage could be helpful and could actually heal things. There actually is a whole form of physical therapy called pelvic floor physical therapy, and it uses internal vaginal soft tissue manipulation or massage to relieve pelvic pain by accessing different muscles that can't be reached any other way. And this therapy, it's been tested, it's been found effective in a bunch of different small studies and clinical trials, and it's been published in peer-reviewed journals. Now, granted... Larry said himself that he didn't do any internal therapies at all so that completely invalidates that Also, medical professionals use pelvic floor physical therapy for the most part on conditions like pelvic pain, bowel and bladder problems, (laughs) stuff like that where you would have associated pelvic issues, Mm -hmm. not a sore wrist or a (laughs) knee problem or a weak ankle. So these girls were coming in with just a range of different problems wherein, you know, you had an injured shoulder right. and Larry would still find a reason Ugh. to find this pressure point that was, you know, in their private area that could relieve any kind of ailment. It just, it was just disgusting. And um as we've discussed too, he never used gloves. He, which is <sighs> Even horrifying. just from
0: this standpoint, yeah, it's just, awful
1: yeah so it just uh it was just disgusting and sad and really grotesque how he passed this off as true medical treatment and these young women didn't know any better and how how could they yeah and it just it, it's even awful like he
0: just threw it in people's faces like i saw in both of these documentaries they referenced they had a video of him i guess it was on his website um
1: gymnasticsdoctor.com yes oh my gosh where he would record himself um doing all different types of quote-unquote treatments right and he would sort of rush through an explanation and be babbling about Mm. okay well this type of release helps this musculature and this helps this and he'd be touching these women inappropriately in the videos and there was no truth to the medical science associated with what he was saying, but he was so flagrant about it that it was just it oh, was right under everybody's it, nose. yeah,
0: yeah, and it was just like almost like athletes even talked about it amongst themselves, and it was like, oh yeah, he does like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Like he does that to me too. you know it it, it was just kind of like, oh, he's a doctor, he's well, you know world-renowned he works with olympic athletes like nobody's gonna
1: question this right well and he took that to the next level with the parents being in the room oh this is awful which is so sad because he completely through this methodology Derailed any trust that these young women had, any um, semblance of help that they could have gotten from their parents, because what he would do is he would do the first exam with a parent in the room. So the athlete's parent would be present, he would position himself. Or would position a towel or a cover so that the parent couldn't see exactly what he was doing, but could see that he was, you know, manipulating the athlete's legs and limbs, but not necessarily the other. Yeah, it was like a major Houdini trick here, like Mm -hmm. a sleight of hand situation. And he would touch the girl and. The girl would be at such an angle that she would think that her parent was seeing uh, everything it's awful. The parent would think that Larry was appropriately touching the daughter was doing legitimate adjustments. So everybody's getting deceived here because the daughter thinks, hey, my mom's here. She's cool with it. She's seeing this stuff happening. It must be okay. It must be a real treatment. Right. And the parent is thinking, wow, look, he's doing this examination right in front of me. Like, how great that I can bear witness to this and see everything that's going on. It's just, uh, it's sickening. It's awful. It's such, like... (sighs) watching
0: this it's so gross honestly to look back on and look back on just how blatant and he was just like no shame doing it in front of people um you know and it just kind of progressed from there where like you were saying it was kind of a mutual misunderstanding or or not speaking about it where the athlete is thinking okay this feels kind of like uh, is this okay is this normal But my mom's over there and she must be seeing
1: what's going on. So this must be okay. He's a doctor. And he's explaining everything while he's doing it. It sounds, you know, he's using big words. He's, (sighs) it seems to have an explanation for everything. So why wouldn't this be okay?
0: Exactly. And then it progresses to okay, both parent and child feel comfortable about this. He's a great doctor. Maybe the parent doesn't need to be in on the next appointment. The athlete comes in, sees Larry more often by themselves, and it just kind of progresses from there where they're alone, he's able to take advantage of the situation um and the abuse just kind of grows from there, and it just it's so sad to see um you know some of these athletes. I know a couple of people were interviewed and kind of said, you know it was hard because." they would actually see progress and improvement because, again, he was doing medical treatments. But one athlete kind of mentioned, you know, okay, let's say I go in for a two-hour appointment. One hour would be legitimate medical treatment. The other hour
1: was, looking back on it, sexual assault. Right, which is so (sighs) sad because that just helps these athletes further conflate what was happening to them. Exactly, Another thing that Larry did to um, espouse this trust in his athletes and the love and affirmation of the entire USA Gymnastics team was that he would clear athletes even when they weren't truly ready to go back, which obviously the Corollis don't care if their athletes are injured. They don't care about their pain. They don't care about causing probably long-standing or permanent injury to these bodies. They just care about getting their athletes back on the mat. So Larry would set them free so to speak from treatment and say okay so and so athlete X is ready to go back to tumbling and in reality, they were just, they had these horrible, horrible traumatic injuries that he would clear and he would allow them to tumble on these hideous injuries. So we were just looking at um, an x-ray of one athlete who was complaining of shin splints. The Olympic coach, John Getter, um had dismissed the athlete as being a complainer and had said sort of get out of my face I don't want to hear your complaints about these stupid shin splints it's ridiculous Larry assured the athlete your leg isn't broken you're fine you don't have fractures and you don't need an x-ray meanwhile his treatment of her occurred daily she was not getting better and right before nationals this athlete goes and gets the x-ray that um larry insisted that she didn't need and we just looked at the photo
0: it is i don't i do not know and this is a young girl like i just oh i do not know how she was even functioning
1: yeah truly her leg where it should just be one long cohesive bone it looks almost as though two um sets of bristles of a broom are coming together to meet in the middle. So the part that should just be a straight line is so fractured. It almost looks like a stake going into the middle of the other one. That's kind of how they described it. Oh, And it's just, it's so clear that this was such a deep problem, probably so incredibly traumatic that um, she kept doing gymnastics on top of this injury, making it worse, and... Was it you know Larry exactly was prohibiting for a reason to have her keep coming back Mm -hmm. and allowing her to get injured worse? Did and you just you wonder did these Olympic coaches know what Larry was doing? Did they know that he was messing around with them? Yeah, and even if they didn't. They had to realize, okay, this person isn't getting better. They're going in for treatment every single day. Right. This guy's clearing them, and they've got a hideous fracture. And even if that's
0: one athlete that comes back, this is a U.S. Olympics, you know, um, medical staff personnel. Like if he's clearing this athlete and she's coming back and showing you that x-ray
1: what does that say i
0: would really question his abilities like even just on that one athlete because this oh this fracture is just like i i again i do not know how
1: this girl was able to even like walk on this right yeah it is just breathtaking honestly in the worst possible way yeah to think that somebody was not only walking on this but was Tumbling. flipping around and landing on this Ugh. oh the impact must have been so incredibly painful god yeah yeah it's pretty awful so yeah another person who protected larry was kathy Clegus. Uh, this woman oh yeah horrible and she honestly could have done one thing she could have reported any of the reports that came to her that um turned in larry and implicated larry for his misdoings but she dropped the ball at every turn she did the opposite and oh
0: kathy she dropped the ball from 1997 like this is i think what is so infuriating like She could have stopped so much of this. Yeah,
1: yeah. So she had one incident where a certain athlete came to her complaining about Larry, Mm -hmm. said, hey, I I don't know about how Larry's touching me. It doesn't feel right to me, whatever. And not only did this coach, Kathy, not believe her, but she brought her in front of other athletes and asked her in a public fashion, humiliated her and said, tell me what you just told, tell these athletes what you just told right. me about Larry. Did you experience that other athletes? Did you get touched by Larry? And it would force them to it's say no. Yeah, yeah. It's basically gaslighting. And um, all of these other athletes, of course, with fear of repercussions or fear of losing their place on the Olympic team would of course say, no, no, Larry's right. never touched us like that. That's never happened to us. Now, it kept going to the point where they would bring athletes that reported Larry in front of older and older people right. or because occasionally you would have one brave soul who would say, yeah, actually I right. did have that experience with Larry. He did touch me. So they would just move on to the next more scared group of girls and have them gaslight the person. Yeah. So it was just so ridiculous. And not only did they tell this, the other group of athletes, but they told Larry. I know. I think that is like just the
0: most clear, like this was not handled even close to properly. Um, they didn't tell the athletes parents, but she went and told Kathy Clagus, went and told Larry that this athlete had, you know, brought her concerns to Kathy and so this athlete is still going in to see Larry and he's confronting her saying, so I heard you had some concerns. Mm-hmm. And like,
1: so he's basically accusing her. And you have to remember that he had a relationship with this athlete. He had a relationship with right. all of his athletes that he treated and they loved him and cared oh, for yeah. him. They didn't want to get him in trouble. They were pushed to the point of desperation where they knew they had to speak up but when Larry called her on the carpet, so to speak, she broke down. She broke down oh, in yeah. tears. She couldn't handle it because she felt horrible about well, she's having said anything against going up against a whole Larry. organization, too, you know? Yeah, exactly. So this poor athlete went on to be abused for another four years after That's this awful. confession. Yeah, just awful. So
0: just going on with this timeline, we then have in 2014, Amanda Tomashaw... Thomas Shaw Shaw. Mm. she was a Michigan State University gymnast and she actually went on to file a title nine complaint against Larry Nasser. and at the time you know again throughout this whole thing he was an MSU doctor for women's gymnastics and in her claim what she said was that he was treating her he put his fingers inside her vagina she pushed him off of her and like Ugh, he's just disgusting he retreated to the corner of the room to hide his erection which
1: disgusting. is just disgusting and honestly that alone that just him being noticeably aroused right is the final nail in the coffin for me like if you are a medical doctor and these are treatments that you do every single day exactly these are just human bodies to you this is just your work you should not be aroused. No. I mean, that just goes to show that he had a prurient interest in abusing these young women. Absolutely. And that touching them was not treating them. It was abusing them.
0: Yeah. And it just, again, another gaslighting situation. MSU kind of um, put together a an investigation that was supposed to be independent, obviously was not. Nasser was able to bring in four um, experts to defend this treatment and validate it. And all of these experts were people that he was friends with. He was either, you know, co-workers with or he was they were students of his. And again, they all just validated. Oh, no, this is very, you know, legitimate. He's a great guy, blah, blah, blah. And again, it was a gaslighting situation where. The athlete was kind of told there was no finding of sexual misconduct. Um, you know, Nasser was kind of allowed to continue on, but the report that was released or not released was really shady in this situation because this actually was one of like the only title nine findings where there were actually two separate findings. One that was released to Amanda, um, was the finding that, again, said there was no sexual misconduct. You know, he was fine in what he was doing. This report was 22 pages long. The second report that was really only released to Larry and the dean and kind of the university officials was actually 23 pages long. And in this, it the 23rd page pretty much said, like, Okay, yeah, whatever we said on page 22 is legitimate, but this is pretty much opening us up to future lawsuits. Like, you need to stop this. This is not okay.
1: In other <laughs> words, that was the real version of the report, what the public exactly. report should have said, and what served to further um, gaslight this athlete. Because if she had seen this report, it just, the true report, It just goes to show, all right, this guy is doing things that are wrong. You just said it yourself. He's opening the university up to all types of lawsuits here. So from now on, Larry, the report says, you got to wear gloves, buddy. I know. At the very least. Basic
0: requirements. Wear gloves and have someone else in the room. Okay. Right.
1: So, ugh, it's just... It's so sick how they, this was all an elaborate cover up scheme and a way that even the legal system failed these athletes because we had two separate versions of this report.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, it was not the first time that something was said about Larry. Um, and so he kind of continued on. You know, nobody else that he was working with was even informed of these new provisions that were supposed to be in place. So he was able to just really continue on doing what he had done
1: before. Right. And so I don't know. I think the real hero of this, um, just to sort of get, you know, back into kind of these victims, these survivors, I, I hesitate to even call them victims yeah, because they're such they survivors are. they're absolutely incredible they actually were awarded the Arthur Ashe bravery award as a group for the bravery that they exhibited in this entire ordeal but to me the girl the woman who takes the cake is Rachel Hollander. yeah um now guys this woman is just unbelievably impressive and she just stood up to Larry when she was too young to ever have to. Um, So, you know, these days, Rachel is an American lawyer. She's a former gymnast. She was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry um, of sexual assault. She later became the 2018 glamour woman of the year. She was one of time magazine's 100 most influential people of 2018. This woman is unbelievably oppressive. So it was kind of in the thick of these times that Larry treated Rachel Den Um, She was sent to Larry, and she was beside herself. She was so excited to go see him because she knew that he was the famed oh Olympic my God. coach. Yeah. And she could not believe it because she was a kind of a starting level gymnast. She did gymnastics as a hobby, and she just... Was so excited to see him because oh, she had weak wrists and like, yeah, she had she had these sports injuries. And of course, somebody recommended Larry Nasser, and unfortunately, he pulled the same stunt with Rachel as he did with so many of these young girls, which was to have her mother in the room with her while he molested her unbeknownst to her mother. Um, he did all sorts of quote unquote, treatments of her um, and that resulted in penetration. And Rachel sort of justified the penetration, the digital penetration to herself by learning about these pelvic floor release techniques and learning that they were a legitimate treatment in some instances. Mm-hmm. But it got to the point, unfortunately, when Larry finally groped Rachel in his office and Subsequently, Rachel didn't allow Larry to examine her anymore other than her wrists, and she knew that something was very wrong at that point. She followed her gut. She did. So she unfortunately really stayed quiet about this. She tried to report Larry to um, friends, family, but she knew that she was getting involved with a much bigger machine than herself. Oh, yeah. So she really just had to sit and wait in the wings until she had her moment to come out. So later on, she's Rachel's in college, and she is coaching as a side gig little girls gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And one of the little girls she coached was a seven-year-old girl who was pigeon-toed. And Rachel was concerned about possible hip involvement with this um, affliction Mm -hmm. and so the head coach at Rachel's gym actually wanted to send this little girl to Larry and that to Rachel was the moment it was the critical moment so Rachel said to the head coach because she trusted her and knew that the head coach had a partner who was a police officer
0: Mm -hmm. so
1: she told them about Larry told them about her history with him and she really had hoped that they would join her. Now, the head coach, unfortunately, did not do that. They, uh, The head coach said, listen, we can't find no. any evidence of wrongdoing. We're going to send this gymnast to Larry. Oh. In fact, they already had sent the gymnast to Larry, and Larry already referred her to a specialist, so there was nothing Rachel could do. And at this point, Rachel realizes, okay, even my friend doesn't believe me. Yeah. What the oh, hell God. am I going to do that's going to convince anybody else?
0: Exactly. So in the summer of 2016, she actually became the first person to openly call out Larry Nasser as her abuser. And the inspiration behind this, you know, kind of finding her voice and saying, screw you to all these other people that didn't believe her was reading this story in the Indianapolis Star. And this piece ran and it covered abuse allegations and various coaches and, um, you know, individuals that were involved in women's gymnastics and very much so like the Catholic priest scandal that happened, you know, years before. Uh, This was kind of her epiphany moment where she was like, I got to reach out to them I got to tell them about my situation and what I went through and this guy Larry Nasser. and so she found her voice she reached out and this was really the catalyst for not only telling her story but telling a bunch of other women's stories um, you know who had 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 been molested by Larry Nasser.
1: yeah yeah and it's crazy so thank god the indie star actually found rachel to be incredibly credible yeah and they totally believed her story which obviously was true and rachel offered i think this helped a lot to validate her story she offered to come forward as publicly as necessary to reveal the truth which which is is, big oh such a brave thing to do absolutely incredible and yeah, like you said, she was hoping that other people would see her story in the paper and identify with it as victims of Larry Nasser, and that it would inspire them to come forward. So taking Rachel super seriously, the indie star asked her for a videotaped interview. She gave it on August 25th, 2016. Just hit the anniversary, I guess, the five year yeah, anniversary. Oh, God, that's so true. And in the meantime, they filed a police report. They started the whole police investigation process into Larry. And at the time, Rachel didn't know if it, the Indie Star would even ever air the interview. Um, but Larry knew that she had come forward yeah. against him immediately. And he apparently left virtual footprints all over her social media profiles, her LinkedIn. And once that interview aired two weeks later a dozen survivors actually came forward that day.
0: You know, not all of them, um, you know, would go on to be interviewed um, and willing to even give their stories, even under the, you know, Jane Doe um, pseudonym. But this gave a whole, you know, validity to the whole story behind what was going on with this guy, Larry Nasser. So it it just kind of spiraled from there. And, um, you know, he was charged and he was actually at first able to make bail which was a million dollars which was crazy which is
1: nuts yeah. yeah
0: yeah and so several of the victims kind of stated you know being a michigan especially he had been involved in their gyms in their you know schools and everything and so he had a lot of contacts that were supporting him and they were having to see on facebook on the news on everything. All these people speaking out about we're 100% behind Larry Nassar, um, you know, and it was really hard for them. And then it was just kind of a cutoff where the FBI actually had got a search warrant. They went through his house and one of the documentaries covered this. I didn't know the specifics behind it. Um, Somebody actually realized that his trash was out at the end of the curb. Yeah,
1: and... Such an idiot, oh, guys. like,
0: literally, be more stupid. Um, and so they were like, oh, you know, we we didn't search that. Why don't we just take the trash? Like, it's, he's, you know, um, once you put it out of the curb, it's essentially public property. Anybody can take it. So they took it, and they found some hard drives in there. And that led to them then looking into his house further, finding more hard drives. And eventually they found... 37,000 images of child sexual assault images one of the survivors said that this was the point that like all of his supporters were silent because there was no defending somebody that had 37,000 csa images
1: yeah on hard yeah. drives that's <laughs> i mean you're screwed at that point and also no offense, but how dumb can you be to put yeah. all of this shit in your trash? Oh well, Mister,
0: you know, gymnastics coach or whatever his website was yeah, his too, like
1: tagline or whatever. Oh my god, what a dumb dumb! I mean, my god, if you're going to be a disgusting pervert, like at least cover your tracks a little bit better. Uh, Don't just throw it all in your garbage and then leave it out front for the police to go through. Yeah. but um. Anyway, in the fall of 2017, the prosecutor, Angela Pavlidis calls Rachel and lets her know, okay, Larry's attorneys reached out to me to say that he's considering a plea deal. Which is... Which is a big, big deal, because that means Larry would rather plead guilty to all of the charges than go through a trial and be proven guilty. Mm -hmm. So Rachel wanted to be there. She wanted to see Larry plead guilty. And it's a great thing in a way, because when you enter a guilty plea, you have to answer a series of questions Um, Basically saying, like, okay, on count one, how do you plead? Here are the specific actions that count one entails. Do you acknowledge that, you know, you had this position of power over person A when you committed X, you know. um, So it really goes through it. It really goes through it, and it forces the person, the perpetrator, in this case Larry, to admit what he'd done and to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And so that, in a way, gave these victims, gave these survivors a gift that they probably, a a lot of survivors don't get, which is to hear their abuser admit to what he's done. Yeah, yeah. And I think
0: even beyond that, part of his plea deal was that he had to listen to –
1: victim impact statements yes well and this is all the work of the prosecutor <laughs> yeah. Angela Pavalidis. yeah this was incredible such a cool thing so the catch of a plea deal means there's no trial mm-hmm. so you don't really get to face your accuser in the same way you don't get to call them out publicly but because the prosecutor figured out a way to allow all these victims to come to the hearing and to say out loud these impact statements what larry did to them 150 different women testified <sighs> crazy and it, I mean Larry you can look at his reactions during these and they're incredibly powerful at times oh. you know he's just shaking his head you know hanging his head looking ashamed at times he does tear up a little bit because you can't imagine I mean the impact of this these are girls women that he's treated over the course of decades yeah yeah so some of them are grown up have their own children and families some of them are young and are you know just coming out of having been assaulted by him so he had to sit and listen to every single one of these women call him out
0: yeah and I think it was really incredible that there were originally 88 survivors that were scheduled to speak Um, during these victim impact statements and by the end of the week actually 156 women came forward so the judge I thought did a phenomenal job she made sure that all of the survivors were heard at the very end um, you know Larry had requested to make a statement in reaction to all of the survivors statements and this just this instance goes to the judge's character and kind of um aptitude like just her awareness of the situation her control of the courtroom so larry is addressing in a very you know not taking account for his actions kind of way addressing all the statements that were made and let's just think your typical courtroom setup he's facing the judge He's making the statement facing the microphone, but then he turns around and says to all of you, you know, kind of addressing the women who have spoken um, and then he turns back to speak, you know, off of his statement again, but then turns around again to again address all of these women and the judge after the second time really picked up on what he was doing. After taking in the reaction of the women who were sitting, kind of the audience there, um, you know, that he was, even in this very last moment, exerting some control and power over the situation. And she really shut that down, which was pretty cool to see. Thank God. Yeah. He tried to turn around and do it a third time and address these women behind him. And she said, Sir, you need to turn around and you need to face the microphone or we're not going to be able to hear you. Nice. Um, Yeah, it was pretty cool to just see like she knew like she was on to him. She wasn't going to let him get away with it and wasn't going to let these women who had just gone through so much to stand up there, you know, give their statements. She wasn't going to let him be the one to kind of. Have the final say and, you know, re-victimize them over again.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it
0: was really cool. Well, you know
1: what else was great? Did you see the dad who spoke? Yes.
0: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So there was (laughs) one of
1: my favorite statements um, was the father of one of these athletes, and he said, He, he
0: actually had three athletes. He had three daughters that had been vic- victimized. Yeah. so Which was... you can imagine
1: the anger that he must have yeah, had. Yeah, and pretty... you can imagine it even more with his statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, Your Honor, um, could I please have five minutes alone yeah. with Larry Nasser? And the judge said, No, sir, I'm sorry, but unfortunately, that's not how our justice system works. So he said, Your Honor, may I have one minute alone with Larry Nasser? The judge says, Sir, I apologize, but unfortunately, I, I can't give you that. And the father says, Okay. Lunges I lunges yeah. at Larry to yep. attack him. He was ready to rip his face mm-hmm. off. If he hadn't been restrained, I think he would have killed him.
0: Yeah. And you can even see like props to the bailiff and the other, you know, officials in the room, like they were on him right away. They did what they needed to do. Um, but even after they got him down, like they, they, you know, they got him, they restrained him and they're pulling him back up. And he, he is still kind of you know he, like he's controlled but you can tell he is just like furious wanting to get at Larry Nasser and he says to these other guys that have just restrained him he's like what if this was you like what if this happened to you know your daughters and it was just like oh you can you just feel that you can just feel the tension and and just like I, I can't imagine like I'm surprised there weren't more situations like that me too you know given the number of survivors that you know came and spoke and um you know and the number of parents him. who were doing. parents by him. yeah yeah i think this judge though really wrapped it up in a great way with her statement to Rachel Den Hollander after Rachel gave her survivor you know impact statement the judge said to her you are the one that did all this your voice brought together this whole group of survivors and really legitimized their voices and so i think just looking at the me too movement and all the other things that have come out after this whole um, situation you know it does just take one voice and i think this is the perfect example of that
1: Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is Betsy Boss Podcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment.